0: As we prepare our hearts now to come to Your Word and to hear Your Word preached, Lord, we pray that You would give us ears to hear, uh, that we may respond accordingly. Help us, O Lord, in our weakness to listen, uh, but to be more than just hearers. Help us, O Lord, to be hearers and doers that Christ may be glorified because of the work that He is doing in our lives. We pray that He would now feed us, nourish us, edify us, strengthen us, and that He would be glorified in the preaching of His Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. If you're not sure where 1 Samuel is, it's in the Old Testament. Uh, you'll see that the, the sequence of books goes Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. So it's uh, kind of in the middle of the Old Testament, uh, right after Ruth. Um, and it's, uh, it's ordered that way intentionally. Uh, As you'll see, um, Judges and First Samuel are very closely related. Uh, which makes for kind of an interesting point to begin our study in first Samuel with but we're going to get to that. Um, our study in first Samuel should take about a year uh, roughly a year. the first Sunday of every month of course uh, we're preaching we're going through the Sermon on the Mount uh, but uh, every other Sunday of the year we'll be going through the book of first Samuel should take about a year. My hope is that uh, our studies of first and second Samuel will take about two years because that's about how long the Sermon on the Mount should take. So, uh, Lord willing, they'll they'll end somewhere around uh, the same time. But we will be starting our study in 1 Samuel today in the first chapter. So if you have the first chapter open, that is obviously where you begin a study. Um, but once upon a time, I, I did preach through Judges. It was about 10 years ago, nine, nine years ago, I preached through Uh, at the time what I referred to it as being the most culturally relevant book in the entire Bible. Um, You know, it's a book that's found in the Old Testament, uh, which was about an age of complete chaos. And complete anarchy uh, that persisted in the nation of Israel for roughly two hundred years or so, uh, judges is a book that is described uh, or that, that describes uh, an age in which the Israelite people were continually over and over again worshiping the false gods that were worshiped and embraced by the pagan uh, people around them in the land. And whenever that happened during this period, uh, they, would be, uh, they would find themselves enslaved to those people eventually. And whenever that happened, uh, God would raise up a leader. A judge uh, to deliver his people and turn them back to the Lord. And as soon as he did that, uh, the people would once again begin to turn their backs on the Lord, and the cycle would start all over again. And it went like that for several generations. Uh, of course, that is the book of Judges. That's what we, we read about in the book of Judges. And that book ended with a statement that summarizes the entire book. And I think I read that verse so many times throughout the study that if you were here for that study, you may have it memorized. But that verse says, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's from Judges chapter 21, verse 25. And now, perhaps you remember or realize, if you weren't here for that study, why I said that that book, that the book of Judges, is perhaps the most culturally relevant book in the entire Bible, because the truth is that same statement could be made about our culture today, that there is no king in America, there's no real leader in America, and so everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. And let me just say that if you don't see that happening, you are completely blind. It is absolutely everywhere. Everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. Our culture has turned its back on God they have thrown him out of any and every nook and cranny that we could find him in once upon a time our schools and courts being two prime examples and the result is that when you look at our culture right now everybody is just doing what's right in their own eyes why because they are their own God because they're their own God's and yet, while Israel didn't have a king, um, you know, while that's true of, of Israel, uh, it's not that we don't have leaders and elected officials. We, we do. That's actually part of the problem, because when we choose leaders, we look for people who are wise. We look for the powerful. We look for people who have the right education and the right connections. We look for people who are wealthy, people who will also be very good orators in the sense that they will tell us exactly what we want to hear when they are running for office. Our elected officials spend millions and millions of dollars in order to campaign for office, all the while masquerading as tiny messiahs who will bring hope, opportunity, deliverance, and justice. But once they are elected to office, however, we're disappointed because the promises that they campaigned on almost never, virtually never, come to pass. It all too often turns out that the politician has been corrupted by money. Uh, Where did he get those millions of dollars to campaign for office? So he's been corrupted, or she's been corrupted by money and power, and they're just as corrupt as the person they replace, and thus they are equally ineffective. Uh, The church's role is to be salt and light in the world. Salt in the sense that our presence serves as one that should restrain evil. Uh, At least to a degree, insofar as we're able, by preaching the gospel and light in the sense that the world is naturally a spiritually dark place, but the church preaches the gospel, shining the light into the darkness, telling people the truth about God, the truth about their sin, and pointing them to the remedy that God has provided for their predicament, which is uh, He sent His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. To bear the sin of all who would believe on him. And yet the church in our country hasn't been salt and light. At least not as fully as we should be. I think to a degree we have been. There have been generations where we've been better. I think we've kind of lost that. But why? Because the church so often looks and thinks just like the world does. And once again, I hate to say it, but it ultimately boils down to the same problem that we see in politics. Often it boils down to ineffective leadership. So many pastors are interested in just filling the seats. They'll do whatever it takes to fill the seats. So many pastors are interested in building up their own personal platforms, being liked and being respected in their communities, that they've just watered down the message of the good news of the Gospel. Because the fact is, if, you are, if you're faithfully preaching Christ, if you're faithfully preaching Christ and Him crucified, and if you're calling people to repent of their sin, you will neither be liked nor respected by the people in your community. It's a sad reality. Fathers and husbands, you too have a God-ordained responsibility to be a leader, to lead your families, to shepherd your families. And yet, so many fathers and so many husbands in our day and age wouldn't dare to take charge of their households because this movement, referred to as feminism, which is a, a subcomponent of progressivism, which, make no mistake about it, has proven itself to be an utterly satanic movement, has emasculated men. To such an extent that men no longer feel like they have the right to say or do anything as a leader in their families. They no longer feel the responsibility of shepherding their families, nor do they have the courage or the conviction to do so. Every sphere of leadership that God has ordained in our country is fallen. Every one. And the result of all this is that we have a very, very serious problem with a lack of uh, God-ordained leadership in our country at every level, which has put us into a situation which is very similar to the problem in Israel back in the days of the judges in those days there was no king in Israel the solution what did the book leave us with as a solution nothing that's why people don't like the end of judges because it ends with these two absolutely abhorrent stories of how corrupt the the whole society was from top to bottom we we know that the end of judges didn't mark the end of Israel though so what happened? How, how did Israel get turned around? Did they get turned around? I mean, we want to know, right? Well, we, we should want to know, especially if you can see that our own society faces the exact same problems that the Israelites faced. And the answer to all of these questions is found in the books of First and Second Samuel. There was no king in Israel. Now, that, that needs a little asterisk next to it. Because in one sense, that's true. They didn't have an elected uh, monarch or, or a monarch that took the place by force or any individual man who, are, who served as a, a king. But in another sense, they did have a king. The problem was that they had rejected their king and that they kept revolting against their king's sovereign rule and reign over them. Of course, that king was God. And as a result of having rejected God as their king, Israel completely lost their way. Not only politically, but spiritually. Now, we should understand that Israel's relationship to God was unique. Uh, it was unlike any other nation's relationship with God. They were God's chosen people, and he, presided, uh, he, he ruled over them, He governed over them in what you would call a theocracy. A theocracy, and please don't confuse that with one of the latest fads in Reformed circles, which is theonomy. Uh, theonomy and theocracy are not the same at all. Uh, Anybody who says that they are the same thing, or even close to being the same thing, doesn't know what they are talking about. A theocracy is a system in which God governs directly over his people. A system in which there is nothing and nobody who stands between God ruling over his people. Uh, and and the people. Theonomy, on the other hand, involves people being uh, governed by people who are guided by God's word, at least in theory. So it wasn't that Israel didn't have a king. They did have a king, but they didn't love their king. They didn't have a king that was like the kings of the world. God himself was their king, and they had rejected his sovereign rule and reign over them. And that is why chaos and anarchy prevailed. And the stories that conclude the book of Judges reveal that this anarchy could be found from the common man up to the Levites. Of course, the Levites are the priests who were assigned to faithfully serve the Lord and the people in the tabernacle. All of them had turned their backs on God. All of them had forgotten God. And while the stories that we read about in Judges are, are awful revolting and make people cringe in horror they rightfully should at least they weren't taking their children to drag shows at the local library which i add in order to simply say we have no room to look down our noses at these people so to speak in fact as a culture we are morally at their level if not worse everyone does what is right in their own eyes why because our culture has forgotten God. And there is no worse evil that can happen to any culture or to any generation than that. Our culture, our country, has forgotten God. We should understand, therefore, that the books of First and Second Samuel begin in a very dark place. Uh, they begin in a place where God is virtually absent, or at least He looks that way on the surface. And that would ter- be a terrible thing if God were not always faithful to preserve His people and to bring light and hope after periods of such incredible darkness. The book of First Samuel tells us about three leaders, Samuel, Saul, and of course David. Samuel would be uh, the last of the judges uh, whom God would raise up and would also be Israel's first prophet. Uh, he would mark the transition from Israel's old system of government to their new system of government under a king, uh, a, a king like the other nations. Uh, but First Samuel's theme is thus Israel's need for a leader who was worthy of not only leading, but also being followed, being emulated. Now, there are two very specific ways, I think, that the, book of, uh, the, the books of First and Second Samuel uh, will benefit and bless us. First, we'll see that the things that, that take place in this book were given to us by God in order to teach us how we are to live in a manner that is pleasing to God today. Paul said this to the Corinthians. He wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Now these things happened to them, he's speaking of Israel back in the day, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now we are a church that believes that all of Scripture is uh, it, it applies to us. It all applies to us. It's all filled with practical application for us, and that's because all Scripture is inspired by God or breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God or the person of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's what we read in Second Timothy chapter three verses sixteen and seventeen. But the book. Of 1st and 2nd Samuel will certainly teach us. They will certainly reprove us. They will correct us and train us for works of righteousness in God's ways. It will equip us for every good work. Uh, that's the, the first benefit and blessing that these books have for us. The second way that the books of Samuel will benefit and bless us is because they, like all of Scripture, will point us to the Lord Jesus Christ and our need for Him, of whom David was just a type. It's called typology. He was a type of, uh, of Christ in the sense that he foreshadowed the coming of Christ of course uh, the the Davidic covenant is found in uh, Samuel's books we'll see that but on the day of his resurrection from the dead Jesus came across two disciples on the road to Emmaus and they were distraught because of Jesus's death they didn't recognize him as he approaches them but he would proceed to show them that all of the Old Testament scriptures pointed to what needed to happen all of the Old Testament scriptures were about him all of them elsewhere we find jesus saying in his own words john chapter 5 verse 39 where he says to the pharisees you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life it is these that testify about me so the old testament all of the old testament is written about jesus all of the old testament points us to our need for jesus everything in scripture Everything in Scripture was part of God's unfolding plan of his glory and redemption, of which Christ is central, and without whom there is no redemption. And so as such, the stories that we'll read about in Samuel's books aren't mere moral stories, uh, like, like reading Aesop's fables or something like that. No, instead, these are stories that will point us to our need for Jesus and they'll teach us to be more like him uh, the book of first Samuel again it begins in darkness in an age when Israel was completely faithless and had rejected God they were in need of somebody who could lead them out of moral darkness and into God's light and this book is about God's answer God's solution to Israel's void one commentator notes of First Samuel, he says, quote, In ways that will surprise us, it will point us to God's astonishing answer to Israel's predicament. We will see that God's answer for Israel turns out to be his answer for the whole world and for each of us individually. End quote. So the book begins B.C., which, if you're doing the math, was more than 3,000 years ago. So let's start with First Samuel verses 1 and 2. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read, Now there was a certain man from Ramathim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, son of Jeraham, son, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now you might think when you look at this that the book starts out very plainly. Um, The first uh, leader that God will give to Israel is, is Samuel. We know that. And Samuel's story starts out very plainly by, by telling us that there was a certain man. In, in our culture, we'd say there was some dude, right? necessarily super significant. He's not prominent in his community. He's just some dude that we learn three things about in these two verses. First, and, and this won't seem to be very significant at first glance. First, we're told that he's from Ramathayim Zophim, Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim. Now, again, I get that this seems very unimportant to us. He's from some obscure place that uh, most of us have probably never heard, uh, heard about before. Uh, has the Bible said anything significant about Ramathayim Zophim, Zophim? Uh, up until this point? No, uh, it's, it's no place. But we'll see in chapter 8, verse 4, uh, that it gets kind of abbreviated to Ramah, uh, and we'll see that it becomes sort of a central gathering location. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 4 tells us that all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And later, Samuel will establish Ramah as a place where the prophets would be trained and raised up. We'll see that when we get to chapter 19. So that's the first thing that we learn about Elkanah. The second thing that we learn about him, we're told about his family, uh, which doesn't seem to be super significant, although it's worth noting that his family is mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 33 and 34, and they are referred to as members of the Koathites. Uh, Those were Levites who were originally charged with guarding the Ark of the Covenant and with being gatekeepers of the tabernacle. So it's actually very likely that Samuel's family uh, would be among the sons of Korah, who wrote 11 of our Psalms. But so far, this all seems like... uh what's the big deal this is not in our minds in our culture we would not view this as very important information right but the significance of this information is that it seems so insignificant you're supposed to come to this and think wow so uh so what these these people are nobodies they're they're really not mentioned anywhere else but that's wonderful That's good news because God has this pattern that we see throughout Scripture in which He raises up and uses nobodies for His glory. He uses them to serve Him in amazing ways. Think about Nebuchadnezzar. He had to make Nebuchadnezzar a nobody before He made him Somebody. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind and had to go out and graze in the pastures with the beasts of the fields before God opened his eyes and brought him to his senses, which he writes about and records for us in Daniel chapter 4. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, if it were not for the fact that he wrote a whole chapter of our Bibles, he would be all but forgotten. He'd be uh, thrown away in the dustbin of history, just like so many other ancient kings, except that God saw Nebuchadnezzar and set his covenant love on Nebuchadnezzar. So keep all that in mind because the theme uh, this theme of God starting in unlikely places with unimportant people uh, who aren't noteworthy, that's going to be a theme in this book, in Samuel's books. Uh, The third thing that we learn about Elkanah is that he has two wives. Hannah who seems to have probably been his first wife, and Peninnah, who is uh, apparently a wife that he took on. Uh, the author, whose identity remains something of a mystery, uh, adds this, and Peninnah had children, but, Hanana, but Hannah had no children. So what we should see is that by the time we hit verse 2, Elkanah, who's A Levite by heritage sort of slips into the background he's not the main character of this book uh, or even this story rather his wife Hannah is the main character here now if you'll take a quick glance down at verse 5 you'll see why it is that she has no children if you look at verse 5 you'll see that it's because the Lord had closed her womb the Lord had caused her to be barren in the womb. Her barrenness was the Lord's work. Now, one of the things that we should do whenever we're reading scriptures, we should try to read the scripture through the eyes of the original audience. And so, in this case, for instance, we should try to see this story, the details of this story, through the eyes of a Hebrew citizen 3,000 years ago. And I get it, that's not easy. They seem like they are very, very different than we are, but... Uh, in this case, we, you know, we can say, okay, it'll help if we understand at least what they believed about God based on the Scriptures that predated this story. So in this instance, a Jewish reader 3,000 years ago would have very likely been thinking to himself, wait a minute, she, she's got a barren womb, but... God said to his people, you shall be blessed above all peoples. There will be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. That's what you find back in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 14. So the, the average Jewish citizen, when they read this 3,000 years ago, would have been thinking, how can this possibly be that she is barren? Because we're talking about the people Uh, that God made this promise to? How could God possibly do this? Now, the answer is, first of all, she won't be barren forever, as we'll see. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, what we need to see is that Hannah is actually a living illustration of Israel's spiritual condition. She is an object lesson that reflects what was going on with Israel spiritually at the time. The fact that her womb is barren should also cause our minds to start racing, as we recall, other women in Scripture who had come before Hannah, whose wombs were also barren, at least for a long season. Uh, We think, first of all, of Abraham's wife, right? Sarah. That's probably the most obvious one. Her her barren womb was a major issue between her and Abraham. We read of the troubles that it caused in their their relationship in their marriage uh, for about ten years, uh, in in 10, or for ten chapters in Genesis. Eventually, of course, Abraham and Sarah were miraculously given a child named. Isaac, once Sarah was well past her childbearing years. And this was in order that it would be clear that Isaac was God's gift. It was his doing, uh, it was his gift to Abraham and to Sarah. Uh, when Isaac grew up and married Rebekah, her womb also was barren for a season. Uh, eventually, Isaac prayed for her and she would give birth to Jacob and Esau. Uh, the blessing of the promise would be given to Jacob. There's another time that God raised up an unlikely, undeserving recipient of God's grace and work because he was the younger brother. And Jacob would eventually marry. Rachel, whose womb was also barren. In time, God would open up Rachel's womb and she gave birth to Joseph, who was another type of Christ, a typology, a foreshadowing of Christ, whom God used to save many. Another woman whose womb was barren for a long season was actually Samson's mother back in Judges chapter 13. Uh, through her womb, however, God uh, eventually opened it, uh, but God raised up Samson who would be one of the judges who would free Israel uh, and, and turn them back to the Lord. But part of the point here is that there is this long, long long history of God using barren women to start mighty works of delivery, deliverance, and redemption. Uh, Ralph Dale Davis notes in his commentary that, quote, barren women seem to be God's instruments in raising up key figures in the history of redemption, end quote. So that's part of the point here. But another part of the point is that God had caused her to become barren because Israel was spiritually barren. They were not fully devoted to God. They weren't even close to being fully devoted to God. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. It was anarchy. It was social chaos because that's what idolatry does. It creates a spiritual barrenness. So when you look at America and you wonder why has the church in America become so spiritually barren? Well, you can't say that's true of all churches, of course, I don't think there's, that that's any, there, there's any question that it's true uh, for the American church as a whole. Because church attendance in our country is way, way down, and that's demonstrated by survey after survey. Uh, survey after survey demonstrates that there's almost what you could call an exodus from Christianity in our country right now. And whenever that happens, it's not that people are leaving the faith. It's that our churches were filled with people who weren't real believers. They were never part of the faith to begin with. So no wonder they're leaving the churches and deconstructing. That's the term that people are using these days. And so with that said, as this story progresses, Hannah will offer a prayer up to God and her prayer will be a model of the type of prayer, the kind of prayer that we ourselves need to be offering as well. But for now, know that A, she won't be barren forever and B, her husband Elkanah has a second wife whose name Peninnah means prolific. How convenient is that? Uh, What kind of salt in Hannah's wounds is that? That her competition's name is prolific. Now it goes without saying that polygamy, and that's what we see happening here, polygamy is not God's design for marriage. But where does polygamy come from? It comes from man doing what's right in his own eyes. So what we see here is that Elkanah is guilty of that. He's part of the problem uh that it's it's not god's design for marriage he's not he's not following God's design for marriage. And that's something else that should uh, stand out to us like a sore thumb, just as it would have to uh, a Jewish reader 3,000 years ago. Because Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, makes it very clear that marriage is intended to be a lifelong covenantal union between one biological male and one biological female, and that it is supposed to be monogamous. God didn't create several women for Adam. He created one woman for Adam. And and this definition, by the way, lifelong covenantal union, monogamous, that's a a definition that Jesus Himself would confirm when He was asked a question about marriage and divorce. Now, we can try to excuse this detail that He's got two wives away by understanding that, yeah, okay, a, a barren womb in those times, very well could have meant or, or, or did mean economic hardship for the family uh, and a cutting off of Elkanah's uh, family line. Uh, maybe he took a second wife because it just really was that important that a woman bear a man's children and continue his family line. But whatever, whatever, that, that's not an excuse. That that might explain why he did it, but it's not an excuse for why he did it he was still doing what was right in his own eyes rather than doing what he should have been doing what should he have been doing he should have been waiting on the Lord he should have been praying to the Lord and we have no indication that he has ever done that Richard Phillips notes this. He says, quote, The discord in Elkanah's house mirrors the intertribal dissension within Israel and reminds us all of the importance of family and church unity. End quote. Here's what we need to understand before we proceed any further. We have to understand that God has his reasons for causing what we perceive to be Delays. Sure, we have goals, we have ambitions, we have things that we want. And sometimes they come immediately as we expect them and as we work for them too. And sometimes God just doesn't let it happen. He works according to His own timing, not ours. So before her story is done, we'll see that there's actually a blessing. In Hannah's barrenness. That being that it will be the catalyst that forces her to turn her heart to God because all of her other options are exhausted and hope is nowhere else to be found. Her barrenness will be what causes her to turn to God in prayer and faith, which is exactly what Israel needed to do. It's exactly what the American... Population, the American church needs to do uh, as well, isn't it? It's a reminder that what is impossible with man is possible. Is impossible with man is possible with God. God wants us to see our total inability. God wants us to see our complete insufficiency, so that we would turn to Him and see His overwhelming, overabundant ability and His overwhelming sufficiency. Because from the depths of our inability and from the depths of our insufficiency, the heights of God's sufficiency and provision are most clearly seen. Salvation begins in this way for any spiritually barren soul. It begins with realizing that we need God's grace. It begins by realizing that we need God's provision. It begins with realizing that what we can't do God can. The sinner must be brought to the point where he realizes that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that he can do to atone for the sins that he has committed against God, and that God's grace and mercy are the only hope He has. That hope for reconciliation with God is found nowhere else but in what God has provided Himself. Christians who are barren, Christians who are backslidden, can repent and once again look to the cross, confessing their sin to God, and they'll be washed clean and forgiven by the spotless Lamb of God who takes our sin away. This is exactly what God wanted Israel to do. And this is the work that he's going to raise up in Israel. He would begin this work by closing Hannah's womb. By making her barren. In order that she would pray for God's grace and provision, which God would be more than happy to abundantly provide. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves just yet. Let's continue in verses 3-8. to Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of Hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters, but to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah." But the Lord would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Here we get a sense of the kind of syncretism that was so common in Israel syncretism is when you take part worldly ideology part what God says and you put them in a blender and you mix it up and what do you get uh, you get garbage uh, you know they, they would they would take part of their faith and part of you know the the various idolatrous religions in the area they would blend it up and what came out was just garbage in, in many of those religions around their region, polygamy was not only permitted, but often it was even encouraged. But Elkanah still practiced going to Shiloh uh, to worship and make sacrifices unto the Lord there. That's where the tabernacle was. Uh, that's the place where the, the tabernacle was. Remember, the, the, the temple would not be built until after David's time, uh, when Solomon was king of Israel. And it was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept as well. But sadly, Hophni and Phinehas, who were sons of Eli, were wicked, wicked men who would abuse their positions, which we'll see when we get to chapter 2. But upon arriving at the tabernacle to worship and offer sacrifices, we see that Elkanah has kind of a soft spot in his heart for Hannah. He, He gives a single portion to Peninnah and all of her children, but he gives Hannah a double portion. Maybe because he's thinking that a double portion might elicit more of God's favor upon her. Maybe he was hoping that this would be enough to convince God to open up her womb finally. Whatever the case, Uh, he gives her a double portion uh, ultimately because he loves her. Uh, It's out of his love for her that he gives her a double portion but here we, we see that there is no love lost between Hannah, who is barren, and Peninnah, who is uh, prolific, uh, as far as they're concerned. Uh, Peninnah takes this opportunity that the, during worship, during a time of worship for them, to go and pre, uh, so fill some or pour some fresh salt in Hannah's wounds. She she mocks her, uh, she provokes Hannah for having no children. Uh, we, we can imagine what she might have said to provoke Hannah. Uh, you know, hey Hannah, what, what's What's with the double portion there, Hannah? Are you hoping that you can bribe God to open your womb? Uh, You know, just go ahead and and take your time with your offering and with your worship and your sacrifices. I have so many kids. You know, we're just going to be here for a while. You know how it is, or, well, actually, you don't. But trust me, this is going to take us a while, so you just take your time, Hannah. You can imagine. That's not probably what she said, but probably something like that. After all, uh, wouldn't you describe that as provoking her bitterly to irritate her? That's her goal. She's trying to get under her skin, under Hannah's skin. She's trying to find her last nerve so that she can step all over it. And Elkanah's response to the sorrow in Hannah's heart upon being provoked to this point. Um, It's okay. His response is sincere. But let's face it, guys, sometimes... We don't always say the best, the most comforting things in the moment. I'm speaking from my own experience, and I think most guys can probably say the same thing. I think that that's the case with Elkanah, who tries to console his wife, but he sort of stumbles on his words. Uh, What he said is, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? What he probably should have said is something like, Hannah, I know why you're weeping, but you need to know that you are worth more to me than ten sons. You tell me, which one's more consoling, right? <laughs> but he's, he's a dude, he, he's trying his best, he is trying to console her, so we can at least appreciate that much. So I think he tries, but he fails to comfort Hannah here. I think it may have made it worse. I don't know. But while we'll often say the the wrong things to someone who needs comfort, friends, the reality is there is one who offers comfort who never fails. And that is God. That's who Hannah really, really needs right now. She needed to remember the Lord and turn to Him in faith because that's what Israel needed to do as well. And this trial that she's having is the remedy, it's the catalyst that God has ordained and provided to provoke her to do just that, to remember the Lord and to turn to Him in faith. You know, people will often speculate about what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Uh, Some think it was uh, an eye condition. There there is evidence for that. Uh, But you know what I think it was? I think it was someone he knew, uh, someone who knew exactly how to get under his skin. Somebody who knew how to bait him and goad him and get on his last nerve. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. He says, "...to keep me from exalting myself. There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself." Now that word messenger, never anywhere else, refers to some, tor- some type of, uh, of condition or, or, or disease. That word messenger always refers to a person in every other context, a, a person or an angel in every other context. But in this case, an, a- an agent sent by Satan torments him, but we need to understand what Paul says here, that it was permitted by God. It was this, this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, was ordained and sent by God. Why? To torment Paul. To torment Paul. Now, you'd better have a theology that makes sense of this because it has to be a perfect theology that, that makes sense of this and simultaneously affirms God's goodness his perfect goodness, his perfect righteousness, his perfect justice and loving kindness toward his people. Why would God want Paul or Hannah to be tormented by a thorn in the flesh? And the answer, Paul gives us the answer in crystal clear language. It's because Paul would have otherwise exalted himself. He otherwise would have been a very prideful man. Now, what do you think is better? To, to have no thorn in the flesh, and to therefore be free to to be prideful and to exalt yourself, or for God to give you a thorn in the flesh who torments you, but who prevents you from exalting yourself. Which do you think is better? In God's eyes, the answer is clearly B. B that you have that thorn in the flesh that torments you but whose presence also has a sanctifying effect on you in the sense that that person's presence or that that trial whatever it may be prevents you from being prideful and exalting yourself because god is opposed to the proud paul continues writing in verses 8 and 9 of 2nd corinthians 12 he says concerning this i implored the lord Three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for power. a very serious trial for Paul. And Hannah's trial, likewise, was a very serious trial. It was a thorn in the flesh, if you want to call it that. And you need to know, you need to have a theology that makes sense of this. You need to know that whenever you face trials, and you will, if you haven't yet, you will, that God does not send trials to destroy you. He sends them not for your harm, but for your good. He sends them to humble us. He doesn't seek to destroy us with trials, but to strengthen us. Hannah herself would realize this as she's praying in the next chapter where we'll read in verse 8 of chapter 2 where she says in her prayer, He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. She sees herself as as being in that predicament and she knows that that's the condition that she needs to be in so that God can raise her up. Our response to trials shouldn't be to shake a fist at God, but to get on our knees before Him and to humble ourselves and to lift our hearts up to Him and trust Him with our condition, whatever it may be. And the fact is that God has a long long history of faithfully drawing near to those who draw near to Him. He has a history of causing His people to be confronted with our total inability, our total insufficiency, in order that we, like Paul and like Hannah, may learn that His grace is sufficient for our weakness. If you're without strength, if you're without hope, if, if you have just come to the end of your rope, come to the end of yourself, that's a great place to be. Because that's when you realize, when you really realize how utterly helpless, how utterly power, powerless you are, and how great your need for God truly is. Because what is impossible for you is possible with God. Hannah's trial would be the catalyst that drove her into God's presence. It drove her to go to lavish in abundance on her in His perfect time. Israel was going through trials as well. Israel was spiritually barren, but things would soon turn around. That's what Samuel's books are all about. God would provide a king who would be a man after God's own heart, and that king would be a type of Christ in the sense that he would foreshadow a greater king. Indeed, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, before whom every knee one day will bow. And it starts in a very dark place. It starts with Hannah's trials. She couldn't have imagined that her son would be the man that God would use to anoint this future king named David. Samuel would be used in a mighty, mighty way. And the fact is, in the moment, we also can't imagine what God will do in us through our trials either. But here's what we do know. We know that He is always working to accomplish His purposes, just like He was with Hannah in her trial. The trials that God sends are not meant for our humiliation, but that He might humble us. They're not for our impairment. They're for our improvement. They're not for our downfall. They're given so that He might lift us up. And so as we go through Samuel's books, may we see exactly what Hannah would see. That God alone is our true hope in every trial when we see the futility of trusting in anything or anyone but Him, when we turn away from pragmatism and every other worldly gimmick, we'll find that God is faithful to stretch out His hand and pour out His grace abundantly. He will bring light after darkness. His plans and His purposes will all come to pass. He will always preserve a remnant and He will do what is necessary to raise them up to the praise of His glory and for the fulfillment of His plans and purposes. He will be faithful to every promise. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the many Ways that Your Word speaks to us. And we thank You for the assurance that all of Your plans and purposes will come to pass. That You have ordained the end from the beginning. That You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the sovereign God who reigns supreme over the universe. Over every molecule, every atom, every nanoparticle. Lord, we pray that as we go through this study, our faith in You will be strengthened, deepened, broadened, in order that we would be a people who are equipped for every good work, for the glory of Christ. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to see our need for Jesus as we go through this study. We pray that You would draw us closer to Him, that You would fill our hearts with greater faith, of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus.